The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Here the Word of God is found in two Old Testament passages. The first is from the book of Psalms, Psalm number 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than yourself, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The second passage is from that little red book in the Old Testament of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, reading a verse at the beginning and then reading from verses 10 following for a paragraph. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. There are many glories in the Christian faith and in the Christian life. But one of the greatest things about the Christian faith is the hope that is ours, the eternal hope. Christians do not look upon death the way other people look upon death. It is not the end for them, and it does not even need to be an enemy, because it can be an open doorway into the beginning of eternal life with the one they love more than life itself. Jesus made that very clear for us the last night of his life before the cross when he met with his twelve disciples and said to them, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And that night he took the fear of death away from all that are related to him. You will remember that Paul gave us that incredible passage in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, 
where he spoke about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and said that the believer's resurrection to eternal life was as sure as the reality of Christ's own resurrection. And so Paul could say, because of that, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And whether I should go or stay with you, that's very much a debatable matter. And if I could have my choice, it would be to go and to be with him. Now, this is precious to anyone who has ever known the touch of grace in his heart. I remember when I first came to know Christ here at Indian Springs. I came from a context in which I didn't know a kid in my high school who was born again, or I did not know a person in my church who witnessed to the new birth. I'd lived with the guilt of a teenager, and suddenly that guilt was gone, and I knew that I had an eternal hope. I wasn't a very sophisticated person in those days from the world's point of view, and I remember hearing one of those southern gospel songs, Joe, when I take my vacation in heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. That lit a sort of a fire inside me, and I thought, great, that was a great hope. I remember when later I had to take an art appreciation and a music appreciation course and found that my teachers didn't think that really was great music, but they introduced me to that great Handel composition, you will remember, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now, if you are no more sophisticated than I was then, or if you're as sophisticated as the best that the world has to offer, the body of Christ is witness to the world that we are a people with an eternal hope. Now, uh, that means that there is an otherworldly note in the Christian faith. That hope is so vital to us that sometimes we give to the world around us the impression that that is the essence of the message that we have to give to the world and that the reason a sinner needs to be saved is so he can get his eternal soul saved and miss hell and get to heaven. The end result is that sometimes we present the gospel in such a way that we appear to be disparaging the value of time. We see its temporality, it passes so quickly. We see the caprice and uncertainty that seems to be a part of the human existence. And we see the fallenness of a, of a temporal world around us. And so we think of heaven nostalgically and long for it. But the gospel has a lot of paradoxes in it. You're aware of many of those. One of those has to do with what it means to be free. You will remember that uh, George Matheson was uh, discussing that and thinking it. And so he wrote a great hymn. That hymn was, Make me a captive Lord, and then I shall be free. Now, nobody in the world is ever going to understand that because the way to freedom for the world is not by becoming a captive. But George Matheson said, Grace has touched my heart and I have found that the way to total freedom is through becoming a captive of Jesus Christ. And so he sang, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. 
force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I think in life's alarms, when by myself I stand, imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. Now, fascinating to me, the the words which he concentrates on there. One of them is, I want to be a captive, I want to be forced, and I want to be imprisoned, and if Christ will make captive of me, if He will force me, and if He will imprison me, then I will be truly free. Now, if you know Christ, you understand that paradox. There is another paradox in the gospel which is perhaps even more familiar. Jesus summed it up when he said, if you want to save your life, just lose it. And if you want to lose your life, just save it. You keep it for you, and you can count on it, it will be lost. Now, there is another biblical paradox that I want to talk about, and that is that having to do with time and eternity. The amazing thing is that if you and I take care of eternity, time will take on a radically new significance, a radically new importance, and will have a quality about it that can never be found if we are not rightly related to the Eternal One. The Bible knows that eternity is more important than time, but the Bible never disparages time. In fact, the Scripture seems to place, of all things, paradoxical as it may seem, place an eternal value on time. It knows the difference. Obviously, you will remember Jesus said to us, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? because in that soul is the eternal part of us. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If we were to gain the world and lose that, it would have been no gain, but it would have been eternal loss. Now, but in spite of that, it's fascinating to me the way the Bible places a premium on just plain time. Now, maybe that's appropriate because I notice that God has made an awful lot of it. And every morning I'm reminded He's made a little more. And when I read history, I find He's been doing it for a whale of a long time. Now, I don't know enough to know how old the world is. But from the day He spoke it into existence, He was the one that made time, and He's been maintaining it ever since. And when He made it, He didn't make it without a purpose, He made it for purposes, and it's supposed to have significance and meaning for you and me. And everything He ever made is good. And time, because it comes from Him, is a good. Every day you get is a good gift from Him. Now, time is the scene of the most important event in the life of God. Now, you know and I know that God is the Eternal One. And it is very easy for you and me to think that He's not a part of time. But you see, you know once you begin to think about it, and I know once I begin to think about it, that the most significant experience in the life of the Eternal God took 
place on a hill outside of Jerusalem that we call Calvary when God's eternal Son forfeited His life in time and space for you and me. Now, I notice that when He created the world, the Scripture says all He had to do was speak. But when He got ready to redeem us in time, it took His only Son. Now, I think that means that time has a special significance in the heart of God. He has paid a high price for it. I notice that salvation comes out of time. God did not save us from a throne in an eternal heaven. God saved us from a spot in space and time that you and I can locate, travel to, that you and I can identify. In fact, it happened at Golgotha between 9 and 3 in the afternoon on a Friday that was a Friday just like today. Now, thirdly, the most important event in the life of the believer in time is in time, not in eternity. Because, you see, we know that heaven's going to be better than here, but do you know the only way you can get there is through time? And it is only in time that you can find what it takes to get you ready for eternity. That's why I think Christians are so conscious of dates, and when we speak of our conversion and our meeting Christ, it's amazing how specific we get. Let me share with you a bit of a testimony that has impressed me across the years. A young Frenchman in the 17th century, incredibly brilliant. By the time he was 12, he had mastered Greek and Latin, he had a compulsive desire to find things out for himself to the extent that on his own, by himself, he worked his way through the 32 geometric theorems of Euclid's first book. When he had completed this, you may know if you know anything about Blaise Pascal, because of that unbelievable feat, when he was still in his teens, he was invited to attend the French Academy of Science with the most highly educated and the most brilliant scholars of his day, and he was just a teenager. Before he was 16, he had unraveled the mystery and geometry of conic sections. He had composed a treatise which anticipated projective geometry. He had discovered the famous lemma in mathematics, which came to be known as a theorem by his own name, and as an aside, while he was still in his teens, he invented and constructed the first calculating machine and as a result is the father of what we know as the computer. But when he was 23 years of age, he met Christ. He met Christ through his sister and some other contacts with the Puritan movement within the Roman Catholic Church in France, and he turned his life away from the world, and turned it to Christ. That did not stop the quality of his scholarly work. He uh, resolved to live for God, but he resolved to use his talents in time for his glory too. He was the fellow who demonstrated first the fact of atmospheric pressure, 
demonstrated what a vacuum was and the fact that air has weight to it. He published those findings when he was 24 years of age. These led to his investigation of the equilibrium of liquids, establishing the principle of thermodynamics. From that, he discovered the barometer, the vacuum pump, the air compressor, the syringe, and the hydraulic press. Not stopping with these, he explored the concept of universal physical relativity and developed the theory of probability, from which emerged infinitesimal calculus. Now, that's what you'd call a bright guy. But the interesting thing is that when he died in his 30s, his valet had to prepare his body for burial. And so when he took his master's corpse and began to dress it, he noticed the jacket, the coat that he wore. When he started to put it on him, he noticed that there was something in the lining of his coat that crinkled as he worked with it. And so, curious to what was in that lining on one side but not on the other, he slit the inside of the jacket and pulled out three pieces of vellum. Now let me tell you what was written on those three pieces of vellum. In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday the 23rd of Remember, he was a Roman Catholic. Feast of St. Clement, Pope and Martyr, and of others in the Martyrology. Vigil of St. Chrysogonus, Martyr and others, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past twelve. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the scholars, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. Thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is to be found only by the ways taught in the gospel, greatness of the human soul, Righteous Father, the world has not known Thee, but I have known Thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have separated myself from Him. My God, wilt Thou leave me? Let me not be separated from Him eternally. This is the eternal life, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and the One whom Thou hast sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I have separated myself from Him. I fled from Him, denied Him, crucified Him. Oh, let me never be separated from Him. We keep hold of Him only by the ways taught in the Gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. Total submission to Jesus Christ and to my Director, eternally in joy for a day's training on earth. Amen. Now, that was found in his jacket, and it had been there for years. When he changed his suits, 
He had his tailor obviously implant that into his jacket so that everywhere he went, he had the memory with him of a night when in two hours he came to know God in what he called his second conversion. And it took a man whose ambitions had been in terms of worldly things and made him one of the greatest influences on Western thought that we have had as a Christian witness. And if you will read the history of Western thought, his defense of the faith in his great pensée, his, his letters and other writings, an incredible witness for Christ. But isn't it interesting that what he wanted was a perpetual memory of two hours? Because you see, when eternity touches time, then time becomes eternally significant. Now, that's what I mean when I say that the most important event in the life of the believer is not something that's going to take place in eternity. It's going to take place in time, and some of it ought to take place at Indian Springs this year. Let me say a fourth thing. When God works in time to save an eternal soul, what He does is He makes a difference in time, in the quality of it, and in the quality of the person who has let God in His eternal self touch Him in His time. Now, I just had the privilege of being in Latin America for a few days of ministry, about eight or nine days, I found myself in a victorious life conference with a little Latin man, the two of us. I'd preach one night, he'd preach the next. He was the way so many of them are, a little short, bald-headed, winsome kind of person. And uh, I heard him preach a magnificent sermon. He's a Cumberland Presbyterian on sanctification one night in which he said, you need to let God cleanse the corruption out of your heart if you want to count for him. Well, I said, I'd like to know more of his story. And then I found. When he was a teenager, he was led to Christ by an Asbury graduate who was a student at Asbury when Elsie and I were there, a fellow by the name of Bill Gillum. Bill had a beautiful high tenor voice. He had a magnificent gift with the piano and with an accordion. And he took that accordion and went up and down the rivers and into the village squares and the city squares of Columbia in a day when the, the Roman Catholic Church was so hostile that the priest would lead the stonings against them. But in the midst of that, a teenage boy came, heard the gospel, and was converted. He then began to serve in ministry, some with Bill and with others that were there like the Brabans. And then the day came when he knew he had to be educated, and so he went to the university and got a law degree. It's interesting, the providence of God. He had to do a doctoral dissertation, and so he decided to do it on the constitution of his own country. That constitution established a concordat with the Vatican that prejudiced the position of any non-Roman Catholics in that country. But he did his doctoral dissertation on that constitution. 
The decades passed, and a few years ago, the Colombian government decided that it must rewrite its constitution. And so they began the preparations for a constitutional convention. Convention just like the one that gave to the United States its constitution. They selected five areas that had to be investigated. And so they appointed five committees to cover those five areas. The first committee, and the most important one, had to do with the preamble and the conclusion, the basic principles to be written into that Constitution. And then they looked around for people who could help. And as they looked around, the light fell on Jaime Ortiz. Now, in these years since, he's been a theological seminary professor in the OMS's seminary in Medellin, Colombia. You can imagine what his salary has been like across these years, and you can imagine something of what his public stature was. He was a Protestant, evangelical, just a teacher in a, in a seminary. In the providence of God, he was put on that first committee and as they met and began to work, it was very obvious that he knew more about the subject than anybody else there. But not only that, he was not a politician. And he was not manipulating to get anything. All he cared about was the well-being of his country and the full establishment of freedom for all in his country on a biblical basis. So he was elected president or chairman of the most important commission in writing the constitution of the Colombian government. They have completed that task now. He's back teaching at the seminary. But when they completed their task, they had a final session together in which they were they were expressing appreciation to the various people who had helped. He was the one who received the greatest tribute of any of the members of that constitutional convention. And when they expressed their public appreciation for him, he gave every single one of them a Spanish Bible and Chuck Colton's Born Again. And I was told that the Marxists in the crowd, the communists, so appreciative of a man whose only interest was not personal gain or personal promotion, but the well-being of his country and the freedom of his people, they wept when they honored him that night. Now, you know, you know where that all started? With a teenager in a gospel meeting. I don't know whether it was on a street corner, on a river bank, or where it was, but when God in His infinite grace in time touched that life, it touched a life that now has influenced the whole nation. I'm convinced that God never wants to throw anybody away. I'm convinced that the God who took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands of people does not want anybody's life that has been touched by His grace not to be a witness to the power of God to make time worthwhile for the good of a world for whom Christ died. 
Now, uh, that's the value of places like this. Because it's in places like this that eternity can break into a life like yours or mine. And we can be converted. And that's the reason for the importance of the holiness message. Because if you will let him sanctify your heart, then eternity will get total control of you. And to the extent that you keep your finger on your life, you will be to that extent eternally sterile. But to the extent that you let God have your life totally, to that extent, He is challenged to take your life and make it have eternal significance. It makes a difference when you let Him come and have His way. So my burden as we begin this camp meeting is, if you don't know Christ and you're lost, you need to be saved. You need to get your eternal soul right with God. But you know, it concerns me. I think there are many of us who say, oh, He saved me. But I want to ask what your life counting for. Has He saved your life? Has He redeemed it? Has He transformed it so that your life is an occasion for His power and His grace and His glory? to go out into your community, into your neighborhood, into your city, into your world. God wants to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things because it's through ordinary people that He can get the greatest glory. Now you say, Ken Law, how old are you? <laughs> you ought to be thinking about eternity. I went to see my doctor on Tuesday, and uh, he did an EKG. And after he had finished it, or his girls had finished it, he took it and ran his eye down it and his finger down it, and you know the jiggles that you get on it. And he ran it down and got over about 30 inches and said, Well, your heart did click in here a couple of times because i got a pacemaker in here. And I said, well, I'm glad it's there. <laughs> he said, you ought to be glad it's there. <laughs> but let me ask you something. If you've got one day left, do you know the potential in one day? It only took two hours to transform Blaise Pascal's life so that it's fruitful. You and I are going to face Him. I know there are a lot of us that are older, a lot of retired people here. And I'm aware that as you get older, your options go like this. They narrow. But I think there's also something in life that they go like this. You know the people that I know who pray the most effectively of anybody I know in the world? Not the 30-year-olds. But you see, there are some of us who've got the time. I had a visit the other day with a friend who's had a remarkable life. He retired when he was 65, and since he retired, he's been responsible for building 600 churches and five Bible schools in India. I saw him the other day. He'd just flown in from around the world. It took him 36 hours flying time to get where we were. 
He said, Dennis, the greatest thing in the world today is one nobody knows anything about. It's what God is doing in India. And he said, can you believe it, Dennis? I'm older than you, and I'm right in the middle of it. You know why? One day a family was having a vacation, a picnic on the Oregon coast. And the mother who'd prepared the picnic food said, suddenly I had a strange burden. And so she said, I said to my family, go ahead and enjoy the food. And I walked up the beach and began to pray for the one for whom I was burdened. It was my friend. And what she didn't know was that at that very moment, he was in a motorboat in which the fuel line had broken and the gas had all drained into the China Sea and he was in the midst of a typhoon and was being blown toward the Chinese Communist coast back in the days when if it had taken him there, if he had survived the typhoon, we probably would have never heard of him again. Some time later, he was in the States, and she met him and said, Could I ask you a question? She named the day when that burden came to her, and she interceded for him. She said, Did you have any problem that day? Well, he said, It was a matter of life and of death. I want to thank you. Now, I don't know where your significance is to be. It may be in the education of a young person who cannot get trained unless somebody gives him some help. It may be in a personal witness to somebody. But God wants every one of our lives to count. There is too much at stake in our world for us to be on the sidelines. I thank God for what Dwight said. God bless him in everything he does. But that's the purpose of Indian Spring. To get us ready for heaven, and then to get us ready for earth. Because you're never ready for earth until you're ready for heaven, but you can get ready for heaven without being ready for earth. And that's the reason you need to let the Spirit fill you and possess you and then lead you and guide you, and he'll take a life like yours or a life like mine and bring something of eternal worth out of it. Are you where he can work that way with eternal significance? If you aren't, that's why God has brought you here. And if you are, he's brought you here to strengthen you in your faith and in your obedience to Him. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at TitusWomen.org.